Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Provcast. My name is Court and I'll be your host and I'm here with Ty Gaston mm. who is our uh, executive director at Providence Community Church and in today's episode we're going to be talking a little bit with Ty as a new elder candidate at Providence and um, we're hoping to help some of our members get to know Ty a little bit further. Most of you probably know Ty or engage with him at some level because of uh, he's basically involved in everything at the church <laughs> and so uh, the answer man himself will be here with us. Um, but we're also going to just going to talk a little bit about his life, uh, journey as a person, a Christian, uh, a pastor. And so we'll get a chance to hopefully get beyond that and discuss um, the importance of imparting the gospel to the next generation, some of the obstacles we're facing with our kids and our students. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just to give you a little bit of information about Ty, like I said, he serves as the executive director at Providence Community Church. He's the husband to Megan and a father to two kiddos, Caleb and Lauren. Uh, he studied at Liberty University. He is our resident uh, MDiv at Southwestern <laughs> Baptist Theological Seminary, which I called Southeastern That's earlier right. because there's too many of them, and I always make that mistake. Uh, but he's also our resident military man. He served uh, as an enlisted member in the United States Coast Guard, still does for the last 10 years, so he can keep you safe and swim and do all sorts of things that the Coasties do. So, Ty, it's great to have you on the Profcast. Yeah, man, it's great to be here. So let's start off. Let's just, uh, I obviously know the answer to this, but I think it'll be good for our listeners. Tell everybody a little bit about uh, your journey to faith, how the Lord brought you into ministry as a vocation. Tell us some about you. Yeah, man, it's, uh, I don't, I'm not even sure where to start. I mean, there's so many, there's so many chapters to the story. I, so first thing, it's, I have just like entered this last year, entered this new phase of my life where things are no longer years, but they're decades. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Megan and I passed up 10 years of marriage, so now we're in the decade phase, mm-hmm. and uh, just passed up, like you said, 10 years in the Coast Guard, so now I've been in the Coast Guard for a decade. I've crossed over that hill uh, closer to retirement, uh, So, which is weird to talk about. Like Every day closer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Retirement or death, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I grew up in, I wouldn't say it was a Christian household. I think we would have said that. Uh, we would have called ourselves Christians if somebody asked, but uh, we, I mean, for all intents and purposes, we, you know, Christian Easter, other occasions, like that was us. Gotcha. Um, but um, I do recall my grandparents were fiercely in love with the Lord, very much involved with their church, uh, grew up in the Methodist church. Uh, they, so they've still been at the same church for like the last 60 years. It's awesome. What a gift. I know. My my grandparents are very much involved in like mercy ministry stuff, Meals on Wheels, things like that. Uh, just every year, every year, every week, they're in their 80s and they're delivering meals to people. So That's awesome. I know. Just faithful servants. So every Easter and birthday and Christmas, I would get a new Bible. Um, always monogrammed, really nice. Um, and it would always collect. used to build forts and stuff. In your, <laughs> That's in your ex- room. I was gonna say like it just collected dust. <laughs> uh, it looked really good in my car. It looked really like like holy. Yeah. But did you but, ever get like a back pocket Bible like Eric Ripley has? No. See, I'm not that holy. Yeah. That's yeah. next level. Well, so Eric's though is not just a normal Bible. It's like a the Spanish Bible. That's true. He's like carrying on a Dutch Bible and. <laughs> In his back pocket, along with a you know bottle of Maalox and things like that. It's, it's, I love Eric. Just, so he's like a Renaissance man. That's right. It's just posturing. If you <laughs> if you take some time to ask him what it says, he doesn't know. He knows. <laughs> he knows. He Speaking genuinely does. Like the, the gift of tongues. At the the other day at at a uh, at his son's birthday party, he he brought out a I I don't want to say it was a Mandarin Bible, 
but it was a Chinese Bible, just not sure which dialect. Mm. But he was like him and Chelsea both were talking about the the intricacies of the of the different dialects in the Chinese language. Yeah, I, I was. Like, I literally was like, I, I don't understand how you know that. Eric and I's friendship took it took to another level when I realized he's better than me. <laughs> pr- once I just once I just embrace that, it's better band than I am. Then I, we get we just flourished. It's true. I, like I I fight so hard to be good at golf, and he plays like twice a year, and he shows up, and he's just as good as we are. Just a John Daly backswing. Just, anyway, we're getting we're getting <laughs> off track. Tell me tell me more about sorry, how you keep journey of the faith. Okay. But my my grandparents were very faithful. I always knew that, and I didn't really start really taking church serious until I hit the back end of my high school, uh, my high school life. So I started growing up without a father. My, for those that don't know, my father passed away when he was 38 from a heart attack. Um, and my mom remarried at some point, but he wasn't, he, I mean, he was an alcoholic, uh, was very abusive, both emotionally and physically. And, and so that kind of like shaped who I was, at least as a man. I, I remember being 16 years old saying to myself, I'm going to be the best father and husband that ever existed. And I wasn't wow. a believer yet. I just like, I was just convicted about that because I had seen such bad examples. So there's really two ways to go there too. You know, it's like either that shapes you and you kind of carry that forward or by the grace of God, it becomes an, an example of what you don't want to be. Right. Which is the mercy of God. Right. Yeah, no, it was a... I mean, there was just, there was so much inside of me that I wanted to be a good father. I wanted to be a, I mean, like, so I was, I started dating girls and immediately thinking like, I want to marry you. And <laughs> I just like, I was that kid at 16. Casanova. That, I know at 16, I wanted to be long-term relationship. Want to marry you. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in it to win it. <laughs> so that was me. And don't worry, parents. That's not how he counsels today. That's it. Well, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I did just get back from summer camp. We had some relationship talks. That's good. Yeah. But the renewed you. Yeah. Not the 16 year old version of you. That's Y'all like, should listen, expect just some go conversations. for it. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so, so I was, uh, I mean, I kind of had that ingrained inside of me, but I always knew that something was off because like I would throw myself into these relationships and I mean, just neck deep from the, from day one. Uh, but it was, it would never like, it never hit. I mean, you could imagine as a 16 year old talking to a guy that wants to spend the rest of his life with you, you'd probably freak out if you're a girl. And, and so like naturally that's what happened. <laughs> and what, what I was doing was I was, I, w- I was essentially worshiping this relationship. I was worshiping this, this girl and they would eventually either get freaked out or we'd end up breaking up or something like that. And, and I would be, I mean, just devastated, absolutely devastated. I'll, I'll never forget one time where it's kind of at my lowest point and I didn't know where else to go. Didn't have a home church. I knew that like on Christmas and Easter, we went to the Woodlands church because they just have these really awesome shows. Oh yeah. You know, camels and elephants and absolutely. Yeah. It's fantastic. Jesus so, rides a dirt bike. That's, that happened. That, that I watched a guy backflip on stage. See, I, that see that was the spirit leading me right there. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but I remember going there, and it was on a, it was a Wednesday service. It wasn't a a Sunday, and I just didn't have anything else to do. I wasn't working at Sonic at the time, so um, I I went to a Wednesday night service, and I me- remember going up to that top balcony in the Woodlands, and just sitting there, and they started singing the Revelation song, and. I, w- I had never really heard Jesus talked about that way or sang about that way 
and it was it was so powerful to me because it, I felt like I felt like for the first time I was hearing something that made sense or hearing that that I was cared about because I, I, I was kind of like I was aware of my flaws but only shame and guilt filled that void it wasn't like I was aware of it and I walk in freedom it was it was like I'm aware of everything wrong with me because this person just left me so I ended up I ended up going there having this really impactful moment but nothing really followed past that point and uh, and so like it you know a couple other years went on and got into new relationships and those ended up failing but didn't really know what to do with it and then finally it came where I was working at Chili's and there was a girl that came in who had just moved down from Missouri and she wanted to uh, I, I thought she was attractive so I was going to date her and she said missionary I only, dating baby <laughs> that's right that's right well I, I said uh, you know I basically made the move and she was like I only date Christian boys and I thought to myself Oh, well, I could be a Christian boy. There it is. There's yeah. re- regeneration. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I was, uh, at, from that point on, I was a follower of Christ. <laughs> uh, no, so we, um, you know, we had conversations like that, but there was another guy that worked there named Josh Lamb, where Josh came up to both of us and was like, hey, we have this college ministry that's it's going to start on the Lone Star College campus, and I think you should really come. It's going to be cool. Thursday night, 7 o'clock, CLA be there Mm, enter court marley into your life that's right well so funny enough the first thursday that we showed up was invisible or forgotten children or no that's invisible children invisible children yeah that was the first one so it was packed out the next one the next thursday was your first time to preach that's what I'm talking about. It's at least on a Thursday night. I don't know if you had done like... Gen- Theologically solid, just probably not. Well, so <laughs> right, wrong, or indifferent, I knew that I'd never heard about Jesus that way, preached or talked about that way. And so I definitely was not saved, but I left there so inspired that I walked down those steps and up to you and said, hey, you talked about starting Bible studies here on campus. I want to do it. <laughs> I remember that. Just not saved, wanting to lead people to Jesus. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I was trying to fill a void there, but uh, I mean, I most certainly was. The Lord used it. That's right. So, what ended up happening was I had. I had begun to make an idol of this girl, also, and forming who I was after what she wanted, uh, and that ultimately failed too. But because I had, because I felt like the Lord was doing such a, like massive and monumental work inside of me by just getting me to a place where I can hear the gospel, I begun to be shaped into his image. Hmm. And so God used my idol, what I used to put trust in, to draw me to himself. Hmm. It was genius work. <laughs> I mean, he's good at it. Yeah. I mean, he's been doing it forever. So, <laughs> uh, no, it was, but yeah, I was, I never felt like duped. I was just like, man, how did I not like, I just didn't even see it coming. I mean, God was taking what, what I was using to to really dishonor him to draw me closer to himself hmm. and so it makes me wonder sometimes about the you know the stories even of, of Jesus's uh, miracles you know like how many of the people came for the the, the dinner right. when he you know made the the loaves and fishes and fed 5,000 but how many left being you know right. changed it's it's often that God draws us in this way because he he works through the means of our fallenness and and right. knows that our desires are 
base level desires draw us around basically like a you know like a bit that's in our mouths right and then he meets us there it's just yeah well it's like Zacchaeus I right mean, Zacchaeus you know he hides up in the tree Jesus comes to him and he and Jesus calls him down and he ends up calling him rabbi and Jesus says Let, like let's go let's go have dinner at your house mm. and somewhere along that way from that walk from the tree to Zacchaeus's house he went from Rabbani to Adonai he went from rabbi to lord and something happened there but Jesus used just a simple meal uh, a simple a simple meal and a broken heart well and I always try to encourage Christians you know my wife has a testimony like this and that she doesn't have a place where she points back and says like I had this moment where you know I was smoking a cigarette in the parking lot and then Jesus <laughs> came down you know and brightly shone upon my debaucherous ways and I and I gave my heart to the Lord yeah um which, you know, as you know, I, I did have that <laughs> experience. <laughs> right. But I always encourage her to say there's so many other stories in the scriptures where you can't pinpoint where it happened, but where that transition. Right. You, it's he more went like from, a season of life deal. Yeah. And, and it's funny how it plays in your life. It's like you knew Christ as Easter and Christmas and can't really like n- nail down. You have moments but like when did it happen that it was all of a sudden he's more than Easter and Christmas it's like you know you have your moments and you can kind of point to big meaningful moments but probably collectively this was a drawing as the book of John tells us that he draws us yeah yeah no I um I mean gosh there's so many ironies in the story but the first one being I I remember my first uh D now discipleship now that I went to it was a it was at a church in Swindor you know so win number one Mm. um and then we go and we stay at this other person's house and I was the oldest one there and there were two college guys that were leading that house and they were both from A&M. No connection. There's nothing spiritual about A&M. I just, <laughs> I just want all of the Aggies to know that. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm getting something right now. Uh, but they, uh, you know, we had a really great time. It was a fun weekend. But at the end of that weekend, they pulled me into the sanctuary. I'm, I, I think I was 11 years old and they just said, and I, I honestly, like, I really think back to this moment because I don't, I can't pinpoint what they were referring to, but they said, we see something in you. We think you're going to be a leader in the church and we, but in order for that to happen, we feel like you need to, we, we you need to accept Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Which is a good point. I appreciate that from them. Right. It's probably something I didn't say to you when you offered Bible study. I'm like, Hey, that sounds great, dude. Let's do it. Right. Well, I think you did just passively cause I didn't end up leading anything for a year cause you met with me at <laughs> McAllister's every Monday Yeah. for kids pizza and, and a sweet tea. So let me ask you this question. Uh, you know, how does that turn go from, Hey, all right, now I'm Jesus is Lord mm-hmm. to, I want to make him known. I feel like ministries something that I'm called to. Yeah. So I was still in, I stayed in that relationship with that same girl and we both kind of attended generation for a while, but I felt like, I felt like there was more and I don't know if that was like a strive for attention or if I like had some like misplaced purpose or whatever it may be. I mean, I, I believe that the Lord was drawing me and just still continually using these, these idols that I, would put up in the air to, to worship. And one of those being, you know, attention, I I'm thinking approval. Yeah. So that's when I made the decision to join the, the internship at generation student ministries. And with, with the idea that I was going to, cause I was already pursuing a life of teaching and coaching. Like that's, 
I was going to Lone Star College. I was going to get my degree in something, I, something education related. Uh, I wasn't quite, I hadn't nailed it down at that point. It was either going to be like history or, or English or, you know, math, one of the two. But I, I wanted to, I wanted to teach, but I wanted to teach with the explicit purpose of coaching. And mainly because I had just seen so many areas of my life where I flourished in that naturally. And so I was, uh, I thought, okay, well, the Lord has saved me. He's rescued me and redefined my purpose. So that's when I made the decision to come and join the internship. Uh, and it was there that I started to refine who I was theologically. I learned about church history for the first time. I learned about evangelism, uh, mission work. And there wasn't really any like direct fruit from that other than just my knowledge base was expanding because I remember, I, I remember the first like year and a half of being at generation where like I had, like it, there was always this talk there, like you disciple students, disciple students, disciple students. It was always, I mean, just a rhetoric banner that was flown. And so I knew that, but I wasn't really doing it. I was just hanging out with other interns. Right. And so it was, I mean, Wednesday nights were fun. And Sunday night community groups were fun, but like there was nothing like really happening in my heart ministerially. So we move away. We follow you to, I, I'm in the internship, but basically at this point I was faced with a situation either stay with, uh, stay with the pastor then or go with you to Nederland. And so I ended up going. The golden triangle. Yeah, that's right. I mean. Not to be mistaken for the Bermuda triangle. That's although right. Although there are characteristics that are similar. Yeah, there are some things that are left in Nederland that are still part of my soul. <laughs> <laughs> Rayo's Bakery. That's that is one of them. But there's one in Spring. Ooh, I didn't even know that. All right, yes. you got to keep going. Okay, sorry. Okay, so we go there. It wasn't as fulfilling as I thought it would be. It, again, platform. And so after about a summer, I moved back with you. You you come back to lead Generation Student Ministries in Humble, and and I came back as well. And I was just wrestling with a bunch of different things in my life. And I was wrestling with whether or not I was going to stay there. I remember specifically having a conversation with you saying, like, I'm going to give the internship one more semester. I'll give it all I got. But after this, I'm done. And I'll never forget it because you said, if you give it all I got, you'll never leave. And I did it. I did it. And I also remember looking at that girl I was dating and saying, I'm because she basically was like, I, I always imagine myself marrying a pastor. And I was like, I'm sorry, you got the wrong guy. (laughs) <laughs> I remember t- I remember telling her like I will never be the guy to get up on stage. I'll sit in the back, I'll take my notes and then I'll leave. I like verbatim said that. And now here I am. And just doing <laughs> I need to get a tattoo of that statement. That's that's <laughs> meaningful, impactful. That's right. So <laughs> I So walk uh, me through this. You you now there's there's this move obviously the Lord is doing and calling yeah. you into ministry. And you and Megan uh meet in generation you guys uh get engaged and you end up on your way to the coast guard which brings into a whole other element of your story which is the military it's like yeah it's like that was a major shift in your life too tell me a little bit about the coast guard and boot camp and you know that yeah i mean that's a major story that's a major part and right before i left there was a there was a shift that happened inside of me just a huge like confession of sin the lord really like leading me in the direction of ministry we took a small group of kids that were about eight of them in Huffman and within three months it was at 72 and just a madhouse that 
I remember Butch and Debbie's home, yep. Debbie Holmes' house. It was fantastic. But it was in that moment that I decided, like, I have to, I feel like I'm called to ministry, but I have to make this next step. And yep. one was, I feel like I needed to marry Megan. Yeah. But I couldn't do that in my current station. I had to, I had to be able to get a degree uh, to work. And the only way, and I didn't want to get, take out loans. And so the only way for me to do everything was to, we'll do something. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I landed on the Coast Guard. Yeah, every man's dilemma. It's like, I know the, the girl I need to marry, but I don't know the, the provision route. So, That's exactly right. So the Coast Guard enters into your life, and then yeah. now you're the I'm United States. Camp. You're the United States government's property for a little while. That's right. And I'm, I'm at boot camp immediately thinking this is the worst decision of my life. <laughs> I mean, just, they're it, it's brutal. I mean, they... Basically, the Coast Guard models their boot camp after the Marines. So it's almost the exact same boot camp except four weeks shorter because they have additional things for combat that we don't have. So I but I I remember leaving there, getting my first station in Mobile, Alabama, the motherland. (laughs) That was a a nod to Jenna. Jenna's so happy. I know. That's right. I'm not I'm not going to dog it this time. Although the smell is weird, anyways, and we uh, we we go to we go to Mobile, and Megan and I at that point it was weird because we we got married two weeks later. I went to boot camp, and then for seven weeks I didn't see her face, I didn't hear her voice. It was like I mean, I had a difficult time like recollect you know recalling what she looked like until she sent me a picture. And then I was like, that's my wife. There it is. It sounds like my time in Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, but it was with every human. It was brutal. That's right. It was brutal. Um, but we come back and we feel like even though we had been married for three months at that point, moving to Mobile was like day one for us. And we were, and it was day one in the worst possible scenario because we were picking up out of our church. There wasn't really a, like a good solid church there. I mean, there were churches, but they were, well, and you weren't your churches, you know, so you're basically on an island. That's right. Yeah, and we were on a boat where nobody was. Well, we I was stationed on a boat, and none of the other crew members were believers. So the people that I was spending all my time with were not believers at all. And so I, even though I felt, like, really convicted both about ministry and loving the Lord, that was a difficult place for me. And so Megan and I, for those first two years, felt very alone, very isolated. Um, I... I was, because I was, I wanted to be in ministry, but I, but I couldn't for the next four years. I felt, I felt abandoned at some levels. Hmm. And so that, that really like shaped my devotion to Christ because I didn't have anything else. I mean, all I had was my sorrow and isolation and my wife. And the only thing that we, we really had was Christ and Call of Duty. (laughs) <laughs> which Megan is a dark horse and I mean just slaying people <laughs> well you know it's funny that you use, you'd say that though because I it's I talking with guys and, and gals about the, the Lord their, their journey with the Lord and, and and kind of walking with them is how often the Lord brings us to face our idols those mm-hmm. idols are slain yeah so for you it's like okay you're you're a married man yeah so all of the struggles that you've had in your past as a young man were idolizing what a relationship might look like and now obviously the reality of it's there and it's like okay well it's it can be as great as you want it to be but it's not god right and then how the lord meets you in those moments so that it's kind of like like a wilderness season in a way it's like strips yeah. everything away 
and yet Jesus is there. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. And I felt in, I felt like in, in so many ways the Lord was calling me to have a season of pause, but I just ignored it for so long. And I was forced there. I mean, it's it's hard to like, you know, balance between what were the consequences of a decision that I made as opposed to like where the Lord was leading me. But I feel like in genuinely the Lord was leading me down a path to be solely have my life consecrated to him yeah. and not attached to any church duties just to him. And I felt like mobile was the, was the cultivation of that ground. And then I go off to a school and, in, in uh, California come back and we, we get told we're moving to Alameda, which is just outside of San Francisco. And we were there for a couple of years and there was a fantastic church there an Acts 29 church, Grace Alameda that, I mean, just very gospel centered, very much about community. And that was the church that Megan and I needed at the time. I mean, it's, it was the, the pastor, his name's Jeff, just really cared for us, really loved on us, knew our story and knew my desires and really like fanned those into flame. And while I'm going there and really like starting to flourish in my relationship with Christ and with the church and my wife and I's uh, relationship was I mean, we had just had Caleb, so we were really starting to grow into who we were as a family. Got to dedicate Caleb on the way to Almeida at Providence on the way, which was awesome. That's right. That's right. I remember that. Yeah, so, I mean, funny story. Both of our kids were born, and a week later we moved across the country. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so Megan and I always say that we're not going to have any more kids because we want to stay at Providence. (laughs) That's good. That's that's commitment right there. (laughs) That's right. So we're both helping Julie not lose her mind back there by adding to the bunch. And also we were choosing to stay. You know, when I look at your story of like time in Alabama and then time in Almeida, it's it's kind of uh, two sides of the same coin of sanctification. Mm-hmm. But that in some ways there's some like grappling with a lack of fulfillment in some dreams, desires, promises about ministry yeah. when you're in Alabama. And then you get to Almeida and there's some culmination of that. Not fully, yes. but like, Hey, like I'm not abandoned here. Right. You know, and neither is my calling. And, and right. I remember even our, us having discussions, there was just a, a noticeable difference and change and shift. And for me, it's twofold. It's the faithfulness of God, but also just the, the beauty of having a good church community Yeah, and what that did for you guys when you were there. It's just like, it was very evident, even seeing how, you know, Megan being able to flourish and, a lot of life that came from that community. Right. Well, and, and even in my time in Mobile and in Alameda, the Lord was using that time and that job to shape who I am as a leader. And so, like, even on the boat, the they, would, they gave me the role of being able to train and onboard new recruits that come onto the boat. And so I, I found a lot of joy in that. And so I, I, took a, I took a lot of pride in being hospitable and caring and understanding and coaching in the right moments and walking alongside them as they learn to do this very dangerous job that we have to do on a daily basis. And okay, then, so let's take a detour there because it was a question I wanted to ask you anyway. How have you seen your your time leading in the military shape ministry leadership and how those have played off of one another? Yeah. Yeah, well, so there there's different seasons. Obviously, you have that, that first season. The, the second one was when I went to A school uh, to get my, my training, my specialty. In the, in the Coast Guard, I'm called a yeoman. And so basically, I, I'm HR. That's what I do. I 
Toby Flunderson? That's well, without the boring. <laughs> yeah. Holly? I'm, yes, Holly. <laughs> okay. That's right. Holly's better. Um but so I went there and I was I felt like I would try to remove myself completely from all the like what I felt like were commandments people were breaking. So I mean all of the people that were in Yomine school, all they wanted to do was go out and party. And I was married, had a child. I wanted nothing to do with any of that. And so I would, I mean, I would walk myself up to the coffee shop and I would just work on my undergrad work while I'm there. And, uh, and so, but there would be a lot of other A school, uh, yeomen that would come in there and see me doing that. And they would ask a bunch of questions and I would tell them what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And it ultimately led to, and I didn't realize this was happening, but I, at the end, they gave me the, what was called the Seaman Flores award, which was basically the leader award. The award for, for for caring, for leading, and setting the best example for other people. And so, like, that was another area where I was just like, okay. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's a plaque on my wall. That's really cool. It's, it's cool. So, there was that. And then when we get to Alameda, um, while, I'm, while I'm there, I learn about all of these military members that are struggling with transitioning from the uh, military world to the civilian world when they get out either retirement or they're getting out because they got in trouble or they just, their orders ended. And so I learned the struggles that were happening there and that there was a class called TAPS, you know, transitioning from one to the next and they didn't have anyone to lead it. And so I was like, okay, I'll do it. And so I basically every month I got to lead these very, most of them were retired officers. So very highly ranked officers that were getting out. And I got a chance to really like coach and care for them while they're making this transition, helping them make decisions, helping them uh, transition from their current unit to a kind of like a retirement unit, one where they can just like peacefully roll off into the sunset. That's a daunting role, though. Yeah. I mean, it was a but it, it was really fulfilling for me. I enjoyed it, enjoyed it a lot. And there was a there was a a very like intoxicating uh, feeling being up there and feeling like you get to help so many people make a very difficult decision. So that was a, so that was really cool. And I, I really enjoyed that. And that like shaped who I was administratively. And on top of that, having the responsibility of we're on a base of, uh, we are on what was called Coast Guard Island. And so it's a base of about 600 people. And I had a portion of those people that I was responsible for. Uh, it was about 130 of them. And so I was constantly having to, to check on them administratively, make sure their contracts are in order, um, make sure, making sure that they're getting the paychecks properly, things like that. And so I was, so like that, that time in my life really shaped who I was. It organized who I was. It basically took these like what I felt like were dormant desires for order, organization, and leadership and really like blossomed them. Yeah, well, it's something I've t- I think I've told you before, but I, and I'm not I'm sure you've drawn the line here, but it, it, what one thing that I've seen that I think you're really gifted in is c- caring about people. Mm-hmm. So there's that priestly heart that you have that you care about. Like you even said it like something that was that really well, it made you flourish. It made you feel fulfilled was that you were helping people making massive decisions yeah. in tension points of their life, crux moments, and being able to help shepherd them really yeah. through that time. And then also something that I think the Lord's gifted you in, which is helping to take something chaotic and make sense of it when it feels like 
there's I, I don't really know what to do with all this like helping people have the forms yeah to move it along the skids a little bit here you know like how do I get how do I move an inch down the field you know a few right. feet down the field it's like oh well let me help you with that right and for me I always draw a straight line with even how you pastor now and shepherd now mm-hmm. um, with those two things are in tandem it's like I care about people deeply and I also can help them functionally yeah. which is the, the primary way that I can help them right um, I, I think it's just cool how the Lord used the military in that way yeah I um, and I didn't I didn't understand that that's what was happening in the moment I just remember getting back here and realizing that I had a lot of like experience in, in my back pocket that I felt like I could bring to the church. And at the time it was a early church plant stage. So, right. so I was, a I w I didn't realize what the Lord was doing, but I, at that point when we got back in Alameda, I was like, Oh, this is what he was doing. Yeah. Like, you know, I told you at the beginning that when I went to boot camp, I felt like it was the worst decision I ever made, but hindsight, looking back, it couldn't have happened any other way. Hmm. The Lord was really shaping and molding me and using my, what could have been perceived as mistakes to really expand his kingdom and for my good. Yeah, which has turned out, you know, obviously sevenfold now. There's so many things, obviously, finishing out your undergrad, getting your degree, being able to have your studies, um, you know, paid for. And then also, I mean, you're still a enlisted man. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, I plan to retire. I uh, I enjoy it. I mean, for those that for those that don't know, I I go to the I go to Texas City once a month for for a weekend, and then two weeks out of the year, and I plan on doing that for the next twenty. So so let me throw a curveball at you because I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but I just thought it might be helpful. To, okay. to, you know, <laughs> just celebrated July Fourth. You are an elder candidate at our church, so a pastor candidate at our church. You've you've been in ministry. You've served as a staff member, executive director for almost three years now or, a little, or more than that. I can't remember, but yeah. for a while. Yeah. Um, how do you view Christianity, patriotism? Seems mm. to be a big com- like conflict right now in the church as the people are either afraid to be patriotic right, because they feel that it could you could obviously fall down the route of being an idolater or on the flip side, you know, America's the new Israel and right. you know let's you know so let's just <laughs> let's deify the nation you know where where do you land on that cuz obviously I mean I know you yeah. so I know you're a patriotic guy not only because you serve in the military but because that wasn't just a it wasn't only a it wasn't only duty but it was a sense of love for country and all of those things I think that you have all of those things so how have you held that intention and what do you think about what's going on like people's opinions about it Yeah I mean for so for me to answer your first question it's not much different than what I view everything else in my life, or at least I try to. It's the country that I live in was a good gift given to me. Yeah. I didn't choose this gift. I was born here out of my out of my control. But the Lord that's what the Lord decided. And that's where the Lord placed me. And this so this is a good gift for for me, for my family. Uh, for I feel like every American and for those that will become Americans but as you alluded to that that's not God right and the minute that you take you make that jump the minute that the deci- every decision that you make is based on patriotism based on your de- your devotion to your country and that supersedes anything else that you do now that has become a God thing right and so for me like I 
I do the best I can to keep those in balance, that every good gift given to me, including the country I live in, including the service that I'm a member of, the Coast Guard, is a, is a gift to me. And, and it only fuels to make me more like Jesus. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. It's like, is it is it in... And I think whether you're enlisted or not enlisted, I think there's a way that you can serve and have, you know, a sense of um, obligation and duty on one end, but also gratitude for those that have gone before for your country. But you do that in such a way that ultimately the gratitude goes to God. Right. So if it doesn't end up at the Lord, then it runs the risk of idolatry. Right. But it doesn't mean, I think, that you can just throw everything out and say, because if you've traveled at all, which I know you have, there's much to be grateful for. For sure. Um, and For sure. I mean, the very fact that we're able to have this conversation now as freely as we are is an absolute gift of where we were born and the, and the nation that we live in. And so yeah. I just I just always like to talk to guys who are soldiers because obviously you've made more sacrifices than I have directly to that area. Yeah. And, and I think that it's wrong to shy away from that and say, well, no, not really. You know, it was just a job. It's like, no, I do think it's, it can be more than that. If it comes back to worship and honor of Christ for sure. And when, and when it comes to America and particularly, I mean, I think we, we can't forget the history that our country has that was built on the backs of men that love, love the Lord. Right. Love the Lord and fought deeply for that, for that freedom to be able to worship him. Yeah. I mean, that was a big reason why that revolution even happened was the, right. the freedom to be able to worship Jesus. Right. And so, and so like remembering that, that a, that a lot of these men that serve their country that fought for the freedom we have, they also love the Lord. I think also like helps fuel some of that for, at least for me, the patriotism that exists. Yeah. And I, and I think that's something that should be, um, not, uh, castigated I think mm-hmm. or, or, or sin aside said oh well that's that's immediately therefore you're just a nationalist or something like right. that it's like well no like we have dual citizenship and our citizenship in the kingdom supersedes our citizenship of our earthly nation or kingdom but right but still then we have very real realities on the ground and we have a responsibility and duty you know in the same way that you know you have a duty to your household yeah you have a duty to your community and then you have a duty to your city your state your nation it kind of goes out from that and I like, you know, we both have our friend Bradley, who's serving right now yep. in Egypt. He's been deployed. And I think just being able to encourage that decision that he made was sacrificial. And in so doing, mirrors Christ yeah. to make a sacrificial decision. And I think that's true of enlisted people, yeah. um, especially enlisted Christians. It's a sacrificial move that mirrors Christ. Even even if they're non-believers, I think they mirror Christ unknowingly. Yeah. Because it's a way of giving of yourself yeah. for another. Right. Um, yeah. primarily out of protection, you know, and, and which the Bible calls the greatest love. Yes. And I think that's, that's something that we should I think be reminded why, of without having to feel like that means necessarily now worship has to go. Yeah. And I think that's why you see such like camaraderie with both active members and veterans, because you have this, you share this idea and way of life, which is I'm going to give my life for, for you and for others. I mean, the Coast Guard for the longest point, their phrase was "so others may live." Hmm. I mean that that's that was the that was the motto. Every every swimmer that jumped out of a helicopter, every down to every like rescue that happened in a in a in a small boat, every drug interdiction that happened, every like HR press of a button was so that others can live. Yeah, 
and uh, and so like which you, I think nails down a fundamental value of life. Yeah, you know, at the very root of it, that, that you're saying we value life. Right. I think the very there, there's no way to uh, mince words. That's a very Christian ethic. Right. For sure. You know, the valuing of human life, and and that there are sacrifices that sh- that ought to be made in order to protect and value life. Like for instance. You know, we I always use the example of like the Titanic. There's something innately in humanity that recognizes it's the right thing to protect the women and children and preserve their life and for men yeah. to sacrifice for that. Yeah. Um, which actually leads me to another question that I had written down, which I guess it fast forwards a little bit, but obviously as you've served in Providence, one of the when you came on staff full time, your primary role was oversight of imparting the gospel to the next generation. You know, our student ministry, which was very yeah. small, not really formed yet. Right. And and you took the reins in that and you know, this last week we were able to take thirty, you know, students to summer camp, which is yeah. Amazing. But it's cool. Um how I guess when, whenever I look at to utilize the the analogy of the military, you said so that others may live. Yeah. I've been thinking in terms of our culture right now, the responsibility of parents. Mm-hmm. And the actions that we take, the sacrifices that we're willing to make right now, I think are essential so that the human flourishing of our children, the opportunity for human flourishing in Christ can exist, that there's a lot of decisions that we're, we're going to need to make. Yeah. And I guess I wanted to ask you the question, like, how has your view of student ministry changed? Obviously, coming to Christ in the student ministry and then now, you know, leading one and and seeing the young people that are coming up in an, a post-truth generation really right. is what I've been calling. It's like, how has your view changed of student ministry? And then as a parent, and what do you think, like looking forward, some of those sacrifices are going to look like for us? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, our time in student ministry was, was very different to what we currently know. I mean, a majority of the students that attended generation student ministries were, were kids that had parents that were unbelievers and didn't attend church at all. So, our freedom to be able to, you know, our view here at Providence is that parents are the primary disciples of their children, but that wasn't the case at Generation. At Generation, we were the primary disciples. Right. I mean, well, and maybe it, by necessity, it wasn't always like that. But no, it, but it was more the majority. Right. And well, and so like, you know, I'll say this, and we'll probably touch on it here in a minute. You know, referring to your like post post truth societal statement, but. The, even those even those kids that didn't have believing parents, they were still being discipled by their parents. That like discipleship is going to happen. It's just whether or not it's towards the Lord or it's towards self, a humanistic approach to life. Right. So we were as young, vibrant, zealous, and stupid <laughs> student ministers. We were like we were fighting that. We were fighting the. These parents that are never going to be able to be replaced at all. It doesn't matter how good we are. We were fighting that with the gospel the best we could. And, you know, that that I, we felt like I remember feeling like at the time, like we're doing this great work. And I do think that we are because, I mean, primarily a lot, a good portion of Providence is made up of these people, whether they were leaders there or students that were that came out of that. But. I, I do remember feeling like there's more to, to what we're doing right now. There's a there's a deeper fulfillment to it. And I didn't, I didn't realize what that looked like until I, I became a parent myself. Mm. And once I became a parent, I realized, okay, there's a lot more weight to this than I even realized. 
and I have a responsibility to shepherd, care, and lead my children. And so when I came on staff to be uh, to lead the students, I felt like we have to take that approach and apply it here at Providence. Here at Providence, we can't just do this ragtag rebellion student ministry we used to do because a majority, if not all, the students that were present had gospel-centered, Bible-believing parents that loved Jesus. And so there, there was no way we were going to, like, platform our ministry over what they're called to do. So we, so student ministry changed for me because it went from me being the primary disciple of students to really leveraging what the parents ought to be doing. That a good portion of my time was spent saying, hey, this is your responsibility. It's your job to show them what it means to worship. It's your job to teach them the Bible. It's your job to model a Christ-like life because ultimately at the end of the day, discipleship is more caught than it is taught and I can teach them all day but what they watch you do is more powerful this is good too because it leads me to something that I've been thinking a lot about so there's a tension here though right because well if you take even just you and I as an example uh, you know growing up in well let's just say pseudo Christian households or or nominal at best Christian households but for the most part we probably would put ourselves in the category of a young person that's coming into student ministry that doesn't have those parents that are that are really actively involved and engaged in living a lifestyle of exemplary yeah and so I always have this tension of when I look out at like Providence of student ministries I I think how fantastic it is that there's so many parents that are engaged and involved and like you're saying that that they're taking that so seriously and that they love their kids they're praying for their kids they're engaged and then also we have a hold intention that other side, which is, and God's called us to all of those kids that are like court, like right. Ty. Right. And that we, we have such an opportunity. Right. That maybe, maybe wasn't present in some of, some of former student ministry that you and I had been involved in. That opportunity being welcoming, welcoming them into a culture. Right. Where there is that, those examples, whether or not they're there, you know, their parents at this point or they have parents in the household or not or two parents but they have this foundational setting right of hey there's this father figure mother, spiritual mothers yeah. that aren't 19 you know because yeah. ultimately like you know when you have college age student ministers like I, like I was for instance it's really kind of like your big brother right which is helpful but how much more helpful is it to have someone who's like a father figure and yeah and so there's this tension that I hold of like how do you do both how do you how do you ensure that yeah. you are, you're, you're pushing on both of those reins and that there's not a closed door to the young person that, does, that feels like, you know what, my, my parents don't actually even come to church? Yeah, well, so I think that... So T- Timothy Paul Jones, who's a kind of a well-known figure for student-aged ministry, he said that one of his quotes is that uh, kids are bearers of a gospel to a generation yet unborn. And so it's this idea that the only way the gospel move forward is from one generation to the next. That that's, I mean, that's the only way it happens. It's not just going to exist eternally as it, as it stands. They, we bear responsibility as the church should tell it to the next and they tell it to the next. And so when you're investing, you're investing in, in what hopes to be an eternal progression of the church. Mm. Now you can't, you can't do that without both parents that love Jesus I mean, you can. Lord can do anything. He did, certainly did it with me. Mm. But 
when you're when you're preparing for I think is going to be an effective student ministry you can't do it without the parents but you also can't not have people outside of the parents who are investing in them then the numbers are staggering so for us at generation we tried to do ministry without the parents and just you're never gonna you can never swim up that stream you're just never gonna get there but on the other side the statistics of good parents that don't have kids that are involved or then themselves aren't involved in a church the statistics of those students leaving the household going to college and not staying in a church are staggering I mean 80% leave the church and don't darken the door again those numbers are scary and terrifying but on the flip side when you have both present those numbers mirror to the opposite effect so when you have parents that love Jesus deeply coupled with two to three more adults outside of the parents that are investing in discipling those students also the statistics are that 83% remain in the church after leaving the parents household and so it's because you had this consistent investment in the lives of these students and they have now over their lifetime formed this community of people that have invested in them and so they're now they're going to be without that because they've moved away and so they're going to go to a church to try and find that community. And so it's you ha- in order to have I, what I feel like is an effective mission of preaching the gospel to the next generation, really investing, you have to have both. You can't do one without the other. If you, if you do, it, it's, I wouldn't say doomed, but it feels like it. Well, I think it, what you're describing seems to me to be like a healthy church. Yeah. And, and so I couldn't agree with you more. Um, couple things okay let me run this by you and let me see what you think i feel like at least in my own life and in others that i've talked to when the there wasn't that influence from parents but there was some sort of youth ministry influence pastoral influence leader influence the sticking point that i that i seem to see when i was a student ministry pastor is young people that seem to meet Christ in a, in a meaningful way with the gospel being preached. That's obviously essential because no amount of, you know, parents not preaching, pre- preaching the gospel or pastors not preaching the gospel means there's not regeneration. Right. So that's right. got to be there. But there seems to be another ingredient, which is something like what I think all student ministry really is, is a space where young people's faith becomes their own. Right. Which I don't think is a hurdle. Right. For a lot of young people that come outside of families that maybe didn't grow up underneath a Christian family household, right. so they're not really jumping that hurdle. So if they really meet Christ and it's meaningful, it's not because they were influenced. And I I have seen, and this is something that scares me as a parent, like if I take my pastor hat off for my own kids being pastor's kids, I have seen that sometimes young people who grew up in Christian households in that season of teenage, college age, when authority needs to be bucked, you got to cast off what everything your parents said because it's not wise yep. that Christ goes along with that unless there was some sort of changing of the guard. I don't want to use the word autonomy because that's not really what I mean, but what I, I mean a sense of ownership yeah. for a young person that, that I know Jesus. I love Jesus. Yes. Um, I believe that Christ is Lord and that's irrespective Obviously, I'm grateful for my parents, you know, that are Christians and what they've invested in me. But also, I know it's true apart from that. Yep. Yep. And and, and that's a really, like, that's a really powerful moment in the life of a student. I think that's that's honestly one of the more 
a fulfilling moments that I look back on seeing students who legitimately worshipped their parents in a lot of ways. Like their their faith was a result of the parents' faith. And seeing them come to the conclusion that their parents cannot be God and that they the only God that they can trust that's never going to hurt them, always care for them, is Christ. Seeing them come to that is it's a, it's an incredible moment. I mean, there just several camps, several students. I've just I've seen that specific conversation take place, and uh, it's an amazing thing because you you start to see the fruit of that conversation later. Yeah, and I think so. There's something to be said about. I think it's a it's a parental role as 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 your your child is growing up mm-hmm. that there's it's it's a lot easier I, I say easier maybe it's more straightforward when they're toddlers because everything seems to be so tactile yeah. like making the decision to stop dressing them because right. you know that they need to dress themselves yeah and so these all become like earthly examples of what's to come as your as your child grows into young adulthood yeah because then it becomes spiritual issues of like, I actually have to, by the spirit's leading, figure out when to pull away and when to lean in. Yeah. And I mean, and my kids are still little. And so I've talked to my brother a little bit about this because he's got all teenagers, almost Caleb's almost a teenager, but that's a really difficult line to walk. Yeah. Now I have the experience of being on the other side, pastoring young people in that way. But I think all of, a lot of our parents are walking in that right now. Yeah that tension of like, when am I leaning in? When am I pulling back so that they don't feel like decisions have been legislated for them by me that then that can be, that the enemy could then turn back and make, Oh, so, so Christ was really a decision made for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Because that's, that's obvious. And I think it's biblical to do. Yeah. Is, Hey, you're in my household. Christ is a decision that's made for you. Mm -hmm. However, there has to be that moment of like, I'm trying to, to lead you to the well. Right. And I right. just I just find that to be really tedious and very difficult and heartbreaking, like watching parents go through it. It's tough because yeah. you're really wrestling. I mean, you're wrestling with not knowing what's right and wrong in this situation because right. it's so gray, you know, because you're not just dealing with, you yeah. know, a, a, a toddler anymore. Right. Or you could just kind of like, you know, Mario parent them. You just take, put them back to the start whenever they mess <laughs> up. But now it's a little young adult. Right. Yeah, I mean... So I, a big part of parenting and shepherding is allow not shielding them from the consequences of their actions. And so as a little kid, that's that's easy, right? I mean, the consequences of your actions are like, hey, if you if you try to lean on this table that's not fully built, you're going to fall down. Right, but the stakes keep getting higher. Yes, yes, they do. And and I think the natural reaction to the parent as the stakes get higher is to helicopter more and more you're basically going to shield them more and more because bigger and better things are there. It's no longer, you know, you're worried about them like stepping in an ant pile. Now it's like you could get eaten by a wolf. Exactly. You know, it's, it's a lot, yeah, it's a lot more difficult, but I, I still think that there's an element of you cannot shield them from their, the consequences of their actions. I think you have a responsibility to be, uh, to protect your children, but at the same, in the same route, they need to understand the the consequences of of a sinful world and a dark world so that way there gives room for the gospel the gospel becomes beautiful against the backdrop of sin 
And so mm-hmm. while I don't, you certainly don't encourage or allow sin that's going to be harmful, but I do think, I do think that you, you, you allow them to exist as a person enough to where the gospel becomes the only route that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wanted to end with this, this question. It's something I've been putting some thought into in regards to effectively imparting the gospel to the next generation in a post-truth society. And by post-truth, I mean 20 years ago, whenever I was, you know, I guess growing up in student ministry and then becoming a youth pastor later, the big conversations were around relative truth, Mm -hmm. what that does. Now we're fully swimming in the relative truth movement where, you know, you can redefine everything. And so that's what I mean by post-truth. And I feel very convinced that one of the things youth pastors, pastors, parents should rally around is not just making the case that the gospel's true, mm-hmm. but also that the gospel's a beautiful adventure. Yeah. And painting that picture that it's not just, hey, it's true, so we have to, so we have to you know, submit rigidly to this system because it's true and it's just the way that it is. Right. It's like, know that truth and beauty go together. Yeah. And that the way of following Christ is a, is an, we, I think painting the picture as Christ paints it. Right. And being faithful to that. Um, not just catechizing. Right. Our kids in truth, but also inviting them into the way. Yeah. Of, of pursuing Christ and living a life on mission for Jesus and living a life that is submitted to him and that all that comes from like something as simple as like deciding that you're going to be a person that lives according to the truth and, and you're going to tell the truth and right and you're going to be courageous See, like that's a what an adventurous life but painting that picture to young people so that they see that yeah. because what i see is our culture seems to be painting this adventurous rebellion against truth by redefining it so basically handing them a pen and saying you can write your own life yeah which we know leads to despair because it's working against the grain of the universe yeah. And yet what I find is there's this disparity on the other side. Well, what what's the other option? Yeah. You yeah. know, and I think it has to be more than just hey, it's true so deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think what's what's difficult is you have a like a dichotomy in our culture right now where objective truth is is something that I mean, people make objective statements all the time. They'll say you're either right or wrong based on what you you believe on believe in as far as what happens in our in our society you know if you if you take up one cause you're right there but if you don't take it up you're wrong their objective truths are stated all the time but there's no standard of truth and so like people's opinions become their objective truths and so I, I think that it's taking you have to I, I feel like you have to be so much more intentional now like it's not just assumed that kids are going to grow up and be, just be these nice Christian families and Christian kids. That that can't be assumed anymore. It, you have to, it has to be assumed that they're going to be full, especially if they go to public school, they're just fully, fully surrounded by what the scripture calls vileness that's exalted. And so we have to be much more intentional about walking our kids through the creative order that God has set into place. And, and I think that's that's difficult, but it's we can't we can't get to this place where we just you know with a gavel we slam down what is happening is wrong and this is what's right. Like you said, we can't. It's it's not as simple as just catechizing them. You have to 
you have to help them to understand that things are not just things are not as as simple as they as people try to make it. Well, and I think what this is is it's a it's a big call. I think it's a call to maturity for all of us as parents, as pastors, as leaders, community leaders, teachers, which is to get down to the the beauty beneath the truth, yep. and to be able to communicate that. So let's yes. just take something like gender, um, which obviously is an extremely like hot topic right now, which is the statistics are staggering of how many young uh, women in particular, but young men, women and boys have decided to transition their gender. Right. Okay. So I feel as though there's a, there's a, a knee jerk reaction in me that says, well, I got to fight that at every turn with the truth, which is of course. Sure. But I feel as though the wisdom is to not just talk about God has said it and therefore it's true. But then also to take the next step and to say, and here's how that leads to flourishing. Yes. So to be able to articulate that and to say that you don't have to scramble around with a pencil in your hand, scribbling out your gender identities every other month based on how you feel, but that the author of the universe has already written that in pen for you so that you can have contentment and peace and that everything that you're feeling is is the result of living in a fallen world and yeah. Christ offers you a rootedness in your identity in him yeah in the way that he created you and that and that yeah. there's something beautiful about being able to stand on your own two feet in the body God's given you yeah and to face the day yeah that there's beauty there and that there's peace there and there's contentment there versus having the pencil in your hand and having to turn it over for the eraser so that you can rewrite it and that sort of futility that comes with that yeah because i mean we've seen this that there's i've I watched a, a a video of a gal the other day who was just lamenting her transition she had transitioned and detransitioned in one year mm. with chemical castration and all sorts of things and yeah um and i just thought man the futility the the broken heartedness i had for her because what she's dealing with is real yeah it's it is real she is struggling and there's hope and peace in christ when he steps into your life to to remind you he has written with pen what you have a what the enemy's given you a pencil for yep and yep. and i think that that's a beautiful communic but but isn't it a step of maturity to say not just pastors should be able to say that but all of us should be able to in in our own way by the leading of the spirit communicate that beautiful life yeah yeah and i and i think that the the wonderful thing i would i'm hesitant to say it's why pause but the wonderful thing about what the Bible says about sin and the gospel is that it can be boiled down simply to the reason why we see such a frantic nature to find purpose and meaning in life, which sometimes that involves gender, sometimes that involves um, other elements of sexuality, sometimes that involves career paths, but the frantic nature that, that we have with it is is to fill a void that is there because of sin it's that's always the answer the the reason why those things exist are because of the reality of sin we have a hopelessness that we're trying to fill and so we end up throwing all kinds of things in there i think that's why augustine said that our hearts are idle making factories because there's a constant void inside of our heart created because of sin that we want to fill with whatever we can get our hands on that's going to give us purpose. I mean, the reason why boys play video games and men go to war and, and uh, I mean, 
all kinds of examples you could give, but the reason why those things happen is because they want to be a part of something that's bigger than who they are. There's, there's a void there. And so what they do is they find something that they can, an epic, a story that they can be a part of, an adventure, like you've said. They want to be a part of an adventure. And so they do that by grabbing anything, anything that's going to fill that. Sometimes it's like football. They want to be a part of a football team. They win a championship. You see these like grown men cry. It's, it's not because they're just happy they won. It's because they accomplished, they finished a story. They finished an epic and so that's a it, it's a big deal, but what's both simple on the sin side is also simple on the answer, which is the answer is the gospel. The answer is always these things will never fulfill you, which is why I think that it's important to often let your children in a in a safe manner that's not going to harm them experience the consequences of sin, and maybe also giving them a, giving them room to wrestle and to dialogue mm-hmm. both with you and then also with trusted like leaders in their life people yes. that you know outside of you because i know that's another big part with parents especially with with students teenagers but you know augustine also said our, our, you know in the confessions our hearts are restless until they find the rest in thee yep and so it's that franticness that i'll tell you as a parent i feel when i consider some of these like you mentioned football that's not foreign to me mm-hmm. i feel like i've got the tools for that yeah and I'm not frantic about that. But when you talk about something like gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, I begin to internally become frantic because I know what it, I know the stakes have just raised tremendously. Right. right. And now I feel like part of it is us going to have to come to the Lord and ask God, help us to not respond to a, what you're describing, I think rightly, as a frantic search that, that our children are going through yeah. for meaning with frantic anxiety because yeah. we're like oh no right because when you see them by the cliff it's like well my goodness right and rightly so every right. every parent would be remiss if they didn't go out and try to do whatever it took but i think there there has to be a, a sense of trust in god's sovereign hand his loving hand and responding in calm firm steady dialogue about here's the beauty of christ yeah and here's why the beauty of Christ has no equal. Right. Well, and that's like, gosh, that that term, like trust in the loving, sovereign hand of God is so important there because I think that the biggest lie that the enemy tells us and gives us is the illusion of control. It's like, like you just, even in your analogy you just mentioned, like you were like, I, I have tools for football. Well, yeah, you do, but you still don't have control. Right. You, you think you do, but, and you think that you're in more control there than you are with the, like, the gender stuff that's happening in our culture. You, you actually have the same lack of control. Right. It's, you, may have, you may feel more prepared and maybe have some more kindling you can put up next to the heart of your child with that. But at the end of the day, the control still belongs to the Lord. Hmm. And so that's the first lie I think that we believe. And, and so we, we end up getting like rendered helpless with things like the sexual revolution with our kids because we feel like we're, we're not in control. But we're we're not in control of the things we're familiar with either. And so if we take that approach and know that the same God that prepares us to deal with things that we're familiar with and is the same God that helps us in the moments we don't, that trust not in your, lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the work of God, like that applies to every situation. And if that's true, then we can be all the more hopeful because God is ultimately still in control. 
It's a great point, and, and maybe it leads us to the one tool that we, is often overlooked, which is are we battling fiercely when we are anxious and frantic in prayer, hmm. asking God to do the things that are only God-sized things. Yep. Like he's the only one that can step in and turn this situation. Yep. So are we battling on, on the, you know, in prayer? And I think that, that, I think you make a good point when you think, when I think of something like football, my my knee jerk is like, I can talk through that. Right. Right. Which is, is, is a massive act of pride yeah. versus saying, Oh, well, I'd have to get on my knees and, and plead with the Lord that Christ would be honored in my child's life. Right. Over and above and beyond any of their own autonomy, desires for meaning, pursuit of meaning, and that they would recognize that it's only in Christ that their restless hearts will find rest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that has to be the, that pursuit of a prayer filled life has to be the forefront of all that we do as parents. Hmm. I mean, we can, I, I think that catechizing children is is important too there's its place for that i mean our children need to know the truth of god and that being something that's constantly said in your household is not a bad thing i mean it can only help right right meditate on meditate on the law of the lord the day and night like if you the more you can do that the better but knowing that god is the one who's in control he's the one that changes hearts of stone to hearts of flesh he's the one that leads them aside still waters and through the valleys of the shadow of death. He's the one that does those things. And if he's going to do it, let's trust that God's in control, but we need to be prayerful about God's care and love for our children. And that ultimately it's, I mean, just as it is true throughout the rest of the Bible, I mean, the, the will of the Lord is constantly shaped and enacted by the prayers of his people. And so if we believe that to be true, then why would we not fiercely pray for the lives of our children to be shaped and their their paths and journeys are all going to be different but at the end of the day it, it's our responsibility to plead with the lord there yeah it's interesting because obviously there's that tension that i think every christian struggles with of you know god's sovereign will and then also the engagement that he has with us in our prayers and i think an, maybe that's the best place for us to end is just an encouragement of God's will, the means through which God's will is carried out is through the prayers of the saints and he's chosen it to be so. Mm-hmm. And so the more that we're engaged in that, the more that we are, you know, continually coming humbly before God to say, Hey, you know, we, we don't have this. Like, like you mentioned, the tools that I have are more like the tools I give Jonas to help me to, you know, you know, <laughs> that's right. sweep, you know, sweep up the porch or, right. or, you know, dig in the garden or something. It's a, that's the tools that I have, but, but we need the father's hand, you know, God, Paul plants, Apollos waters, but God gives the increase. That's right. probably best place to end. I mean, we could talk for hours, but we've already gone for a while. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That dude, it was it was great having you. It was just a great conversation. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. Well, thanks so much for listening to this edition of the Provcast. Um, we hope that you guys enjoyed it. Uh, if you want to know a little bit more about Providence, you can go to providencetx.org, our website, and you can check us out there. Also, subscribe to the podcast on, on uh, iTunes, and you'll get, if you subscribe to Providence Community Church uh, with the, uh, the red logo there, you'll also get all of our podcasts posted there, um, and we hope that you guys have been enjoying them. Uh, but until next time, we love you, be blessed, love God, love people, and uh, we'll see you next time.